This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, truth seekers, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 301, entitled, Are the Opponents of First John Gnostics? So last week, we discussed the question of who the opponents of First John actually are, namely those persons who left the Christian community, as defined by First John, and those who offered the occasion for composing the document known as First John. And we briefly surveyed last week the five options that scholars have variously suggested for identifying these particular opponents. The first option was that they were Gnostics, adherents to Gnosticism. The second option is that they were Docetist, adherents to a Docetic Christology. Third option is that they were followers of Serenthus, who advocated for a separationist Christology, suggesting that Jesus and the Christ were two separate things. The fourth option was that the opponents denied the significance of Jesus in some meaningful way. And the final option is that they were Jews. And some interpreters have even attempted to combine two or more of these categories in order to best explain the elusive evidence as we have it in 1 John. But this week's episode is going to give us the opportunity to look at the interpretation of Gnostic opponents as the identity of those who separated from the Johannine community as represented in 1 John. Now, in this episode, I'm going to offer the arguments that scholars have put forth in favor of the opponents being adherents to Gnosticism as thoroughly as I am able. And then I'm going to put forth the rebuttals that other scholars have made against those who champion the Gnostic opponents theory. And in the end, I will let you know which side I think has actually won the debate. And this, of course, is just going to be my opinion, but you are welcome to make up your own mind after listening to both sides. So, were the opponents of 1 John believers in Gnosticism, and was 1 John written to strengthen the faith of this community of Christians against various Gnostic heresies? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at arguments in favor of the theory of Gnostic opponents in 1 John. So what scholars have done is that they have compared these critiques that have been made by the ancient church fathers that were heresy hunters. They were heresiologists. And these would include Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Hippolytus, and Epiphanius. And so scholars have looked at the arguments of these church fathers, and they have compared them with various statements that are found in 1 John. And these scholars take a particular line of interpretation 
and they describe the opponents of First John as adherents to Gnosticism based on the following eight reasons. Number one, the opponents deny the physicality of Jesus, the fullness of the Incarnation, or the reality of his death. And scholars will point to passages like 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, which says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Or a passage like chapter 2, verse 22, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Or chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And so scholars look at those passages and they say, well, they seem to be arguing in favor of the reality of the physicality of Jesus and his enfleshment in some sense, depending on, of course, how you define incarnation, and of course, the reality of his death. And they suggest that the opponents are Gnostic because those Gnostics would deny such things. That's the first argument. The second argument would be that the opponents are Gnostics because they are antinomians who claim to know God. And because of their knowledge of God, they no longer needed to keep the commandments or to show love. And so these scholars will point to passages like chapter 1, verse 6 which says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The suggestion, of course, is that the opponents would not do such a thing. And then another passage in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know we are in him, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. That's chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Again, the argument is that the author is saying that these are the things that you should believe and that you should do because the Gnostic opponents are not saying and doing these things. The third suggestion is that the Gnostics were claiming to be sinlessly perfect. And so 1 John would be writing arguments against that sort of belief, like in chapter 1, verse 8, which says that if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Or two verses later, in chapter 1, verse 10, which says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So that's the argument that the Gnostics are claiming to be sinlessly perfect. The fourth argument is suggesting 
that the Gnostics claimed that the Godhead was composed of a plurality of aeons, creating both light and darkness within God. And so the suggestion would be that 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 would be arguing against this sort of heresy. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says that this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So the suggestion would be that the emphasis on God being light, and that in him, notice in him, a single person, there is no darkness at all, would be countering those who think that there is darkness and light in God, as in a plurality of aeons within the Godhead. The next argument is that the Gnostics taught that salvation is by the reception of special knowledge rather than by the atoning death of Jesus. And so 1 John would be writing against that heresy in a passage like chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, which says, If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light, just as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. And of course, a similar passage we already read in chapter 2, verse 2, where he himself is the propitiation for our sins. So the argument is that those statements are made in order to counter the Gnostic heresy of suggesting that salvation is not by the atoning death of Jesus, and that it's by the reception of this mystical Gnostic knowledge. The next argument would be that these Gnostic enthusiasts were stressing the charismatic experience over and against the historical teachings of Jesus, often in favor of some sort of special anointing that they have received. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 20 will say that you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. And this is later defined more fully in verse 27. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need of anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. That's chapter 2, verse 27. We have a little bit more evidence of this in chapter 3, verse 24, which says, The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know this, that he abides in us, and by the Spirit that he has given to us. That's in chapter 3, verse 24. And in chapter 4, verse 6, it says, We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the argument is that these passages are put forth in order to argue against the Gnostic heresy, suggesting that because they have a charismatic experience, that that is more important, and that should guide you instead of the historical teachings of Jesus. The next argument would be that the Gnostics took their charismatic experience as something that led them to an over-realized eschatology, which resulted in the rejection of any sort of judgment coming in the future. And so a passage like 
1 John 2, verse 28, would be written against this sort of heresy, which says, Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So, 1 John is going to talk about the future appearance of Jesus and his parousia, his physical coming, his appearance, his return, his second coming to the earth, and that this, of course, is meant to balance out this sort of overly charismatic, over-realized eschatology that the possessors of this Gnostic understanding described as possessing. And lastly, the argument is that the Gnostics accuse the apostles of corrupting the original teachings of Jesus. So you couldn't get the teachings of Jesus from the apostles. You would have to get it from this special knowledge. And so we can look at a passage like chapter 1, verse 3, which says, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The emphasis there, of course, in chapter 1, verse 3, being that the fellowship is not just with God, it's also with his Son, Jesus. And this, of course, is something that has been proclaimed, passed on through the apostles and the teachers. And then we have a passage like 1 John 2, verse 13, where the author says, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. That again is chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. And finally, chapter 2, verse 24 is marshaled as evidence in favor of this suggestion, which says, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. First John 2, verse 24. And so those passages are suggested as arguing against this heresy that the Gnostics were suggesting, namely that the apostles corrupted the original teachings of Jesus, and so you had to get the knowledge from this special gnosis. So those are the arguments that scholars who write on 1 John, write commentaries, and write various books and scholarly monographs, these are the arguments that they put forth in order to argue that the opponents of 1 John, those who have left the community, are believers in a Gnostic Christology, and they are adherents to Gnosticism. That is the argument in favor of Gnosticism being the belief of the opponents. Let's move to our second point. Point number two, arguments against the theory of Gnostic opponents in 1 John. So the suggestion that the opponents in 1 John are Gnostics has not met with a universal acceptance. There are some scholars that push against this, and these are the arguments that they give. So the first argument that is used to rebut 
the suggestion that the opponents are Gnostic deals with the issue of dating. And the issue of dating basically says that we don't have any text in our possession that exhibit Gnostic tendencies or doctrines of Gnosticism that we can date before the second century. And so if First John is dated around the time of the final composition of the Gospel John, and if the Gospel John arrived at its final form in the 90s AD, at the very, very end of the first century, then there were no Gnostics in existence at this point. There were no writings from Gnostics. There were no Gnostic teachers that were living. There was no Gnostic school that you could point to or locate at any particular location, nor was there any Gnostic church or even a Gnostic synagogue for that matter, if you want to say that it's a Jewish form of Gnosticism. Now, there are actually scholars back in the 20th century who, in arguing that the opponents of First John were Gnostics, they actually had to date First John to the middle of the second century in order for this to work. But this, I would point out, is a textbook case of what we call circular reasoning. Their argument is that Gnosticism was certainly popular in the second century, and we know that Gnostics must be the, the opponents in First John, so First John must have been written in the second century in order to combat these pesky second century Gnostics. And there lies the circular reasoning. They have to date First John to the second century, because they've already decided that the opponents are Gnostics, and Gnostics only appear in the second century. And I think that just doesn't really work. And you don't really find this argument championed by anyone today in the 21st century. So that's the issue with dating. The point is that there aren't any Gnostics in the first century, so that makes it difficult for the opponents to be Gnostics. The second argument that is used to rebut the suggestion that the opponents are Gnostics is that the document First John really lacks any explicit rebuttals against Gnosticism. So there aren't any of these demiurges in First John. There isn't any suggestion that there was a belief in a plurality of gods that emanated from one another. There's no suggestion that Christian monotheism was under attack in First John and that it needed to be uh, declared and defended. So these kind of hallmark pieces that a lot of people that think fall into the category of Gnosticism, and I've talked before about the problem of defining Gnosticism, but for those that still want to hold on to that particular category, uh, one of the major features of it involves a plurality of demiurges or gods that emanate from one another. But there is just no explicit evidence for that in First John. There's also no evidence that the opponents in First John taught that this God of the Old Testament was evil and that the New Testament had a job of saving Christians from this bad Old Testament God and you know, the sort of thing that you commonly see in so-called Gnostic writings, but there's no suggestion that that was even there in First John. And there's just no explicit rebuttal against Gnostic theology.
And this really brings us to the third argument against Gnostic opponents in 1 John, is that these arguments are all mere readings. Basically, the interpreters in this camp have to engage in readings of these various texts in 1 John, and they assume that what is said is a positive statement against some sort of threat or heresy that is being taught by these Gnostic opponents. And these interpreters determine that the opposite of these statements are things that are believed by the opponents. In other words, the theory rests on the assumption of a mere reading, despite the fact that there aren't any explicit texts that declare that the opponents are Gnostics. And it gets a little troubling when you have to read all of 1 John and assume that every single positive statement that's being said is directly written against something that goes against what the Gnostics believe, assuming that the Gnostics disagree with all of these positive statements. It's a mere reading sort of argument. Now, I do want to say here at the outset that I don't think that mere readings in and of themselves are bad. It's possible that the writings of the Bible are offering mere readings to say that a certain truth should be upheld because a particular opponent at the time of the writing of that particular document is saying the opposite. I do think that's possible. I do think that actually does take place in the first century. But I don't think you can build an entire argument strictly on mere readings alone. And that's what the interpreters who argue for the opponents being Gnostics have to do. They have to rest simply on mere readings without any explicit evidence. This will move us to our third point, which is the use of 1 John by Gnostics in the second century. So an interesting sort of twist in this study is that there is a particular Gnostic work from the Valentinian school, a famous Gnostic school in the second century, called the Gospel of Truth. The Gospel of Truth was written in the second century, and it was composed in Greek. And the interesting thing is that this Gnostic Gospel seems to have actually used 1 John as a source. Let me make a case for this. Example number one. The Gospel of Truth says, quote, when they had seen him and heard him, he granted to them to taste him and to smell him and to touch the beloved son. That's Gospel of Truth, paragraph 30, verses 26 through 32. And this seems to be drawing upon what we see in the very first verse of First John, which says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So it seems pretty clear here that the gospel of truth is talking about things that they've seen, things that they have heard, things that they have tasted and smelled and touched. It seems to be drawing from the opening verse of 1 John. That's example number one. Example number two comes from gospel of truth, chapter 35, verses 2 through 6, which says, while their hope, for which they are waiting, they whose image is light with no shadow in it. This sounds like it's drawing upon 
1 John chapter 1, verse 5, where it says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So God is light, there is no darkness in him, and the gospel of truth says that the image is light and that there is no shadow in it. It seems to be very similar. And the third example involves a lengthy passage in Gospel Truth 36 verses 13 through 20 in which Christ has a particular ointment that he uses to anoint believers that makes them perfect. And this seems to be drawing on 1 John chapter 2 verse 27 which says, As for you, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So in First John, we get the sense that there is this anointing that suggests that there is no need for anyone to teach the readers of First John. And of course, the Gospel of Truth is basically saying the same thing, that Christ gives this ointment that makes people perfect. So when you put all that together, it does seem like the Gospel of Truth, a second century Valentinian Gnostic work, is actually using First John as a source and drawing from its theology and using it in a positive way. It's not actually disagreeing with it. It's actually building on those arguments and agreeing with those arguments. And so if 1 John was written against Gnostic opponents, then why does a Gnostic work like the Gospel of Truth quote from 1 John and use the positive arguments of 1 John for its own Gnostic teaching purposes? The Gospel of Truth thinks that 1 John supports its Gnostic theology, so how could 1 John be written against Gnostics? It doesn't make sense. At least it doesn't make sense to me. And we know that the Gospel of Truth was considered a Gnostic work in the second century because Irenaeus mentions the Gospel of Truth by name in his work against heresies. So to me, I think, that's a pretty interesting argument that needs to be taken into account. Now, the fourth argument that is put forth, this is actually uh, another sort of argument in favor of the opponents being Gnostics in some sort of sense, is that we should actually categorize the opponents not as Gnostics per se, but as proto-Gnostics or incipient Gnostics. And so these scholars actually admit that there really was no full-blown Gnosticism in the first century. So instead, they argue for forms of proto-Gnosticism or incipient Gnosticism. In this particular variation of the theory, the opponents of 1 John are not full-blown Gnostics, but they were proto-Gnostics. They were holding to beliefs that would eventually develop into the fully-fledged Gnosticism that we find in the second century. So I just want to kind of put this forth as a variation of the arguments in favor of the opponents being Gnostics. However, there are scholars that have pushed back against this. These are the rebukes that they offer. Number one, 
whatever proto or incipient Gnosticism is, is never clearly defined. It, of course, depends on you defining what Gnosticism is, and modern scholarship has not come up with an agreed-upon definition of what that is. So if you can't define what Gnosticism is, how can you define what proto or incipient Gnosticism is? And those who actually do try to give a definition for incipient or proto-Gnosticism, they offer a definition that is far too broad, and it's so broad that it could actually refer to and include almost everything that's said about early Christianity. Virtually the entire Jewish tradition can be described as possessing ideas that would later become predominant within Gnostic works. You could say the same about the arguments that are written in the writings of Plato, or even in the theology as we see in the Gospel of John. So there are a lot of things that we can see, especially in the Gospel of John, that will become really important parts of Gnostic theology, but it doesn't mean that the Gospel of John, or 1 John for that matter, was proto-Gnostic or incipient Gnosticism. Just the definition here is just far too broad. It doesn't actually tell us anything that is meaningful. Another argument is that this suggestion anachronistically suggests that the persons that are proto-Gnostics existed when there is no evidence of these persons actually being in the first century. As we pointed out, there are no proto-Gnostic schools. There is no proto-Gnostic church. There are no synagogues of the proto-Gnostics. There are no famous first century teachers of incipient Gnosticism. The suggestion that there were proto-Gnostics in the first century lacks historically verifiable data to locate these persons in the first century proper. And so another way of looking at this is by noting how biblical Unitarians rightly object to people who read the New Testament through the lens of 4th and 5th century church councils. So it's equally wrong to read the New Testament through the lens of 2nd century fights with Gnosticism if there aren't any Gnostics in the 1st century, or for the sake of this argument, proto-Gnostics. So in short, and in conclusion, I'm not actually convinced that the arguments in favor of the opponents of 1st John being Gnostics actually withstand the rebuttals that have been offered by scholars. So if it doesn't look like that the opponents of 1st John fit nicely into the camp of Gnostics, we're going to have to look for another identity of the opponent that better fits the data that we have. So my question is, could the opponents of 1st John be docetic Christians? Namely, those who claim that Jesus only seemed to be human, but he wasn't really a member of the human race. He only seemed to be human. That's what we're going to discuss in our next episode. Please look forward to our next episode. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. 
You can subscribe absolutely for free on iTunes and YouTube. You can give us an honest review online, and you can share your favorite episodes like this one with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation, please check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.